We have the privilege this morning of having Harry and Jan Gebert with us, uh, missionaries uh, with ABWE. Uh, we have been supporting Harry and Jan for over 30 years, which is a beautiful partnership. I'm so thankful for their faithfulness to see missionaries continue to run that race with endurance. Uh, they've been all over the world from Gambia in Africa to Central and Southeast Asia. Uh, the last number of years, they've been focusing on, on reaching people groups um, that, are, that follow Islam, that worship uh, through the, the religion of Islam. And I'm just so grateful for Harry's compassion. Uh, Jan, we have prayed for you over the years. You know that. And we are so grateful for the way that God has sustained you physically and brought you here. It is a gift to have you both with us today. And we want you to know that. Uh, Harry, would you come up and would you please welcome Harry Gebert. Thanks, Mark. Hey, imagine with me for a second, a small town in the middle of nowhere, not like Bowie is, out in the middle of nowhere. Imagine a young man growing up in that town. He goes to a mainline church most Sundays. He thinks he's a Christian. And what he wants out of life is to be a doctor and join a country club. Sounds pretty good. So he goes off to college. And at college, he meets the first real Christian that he's ever met in his life. And this young woman lives it in word and actions, and she shares the gospel with him. He's convicted. He starts to read the Bible. He's convicted of sin, and within a year, he makes a life-changing decision to follow Christ. In the next year or so, he reads books about missions. He still wants to be a doctor. But those books of missions were about doctors who were medical missionaries. And he says, God, if you will have me, I really want to go. I really want to go. That young woman that led him to Christ also had that same dream. And that was Jan and me. We finished medical school. We did residencies. And we went off to Africa. But not before... We had five kids. <laughs> and that little one, that's about, uh, about three weeks in our backyard in Africa. And Emma is about four months old, and Anna, the oldest, is eight. We lived in the Gambia, West Africa for a decade, ran a hospital, we're doing church planting, saw people come to Christ, saw the beginnings of a church. And then God moved our hearts to serve in North and East Africa. We moved to France to learn French, to go to Tunisia to teach in medical school because the language of instruction is French. Instead, we moved to Jordan, even made a trip to Baghdad uh, to look there to see if that was a place we should be. And in that time period, we opened the countries of, for ABW, Turkey, Jordan, Indonesia, and the United Arab Emirates. And you're getting the picture there. Those are all Muslim countries majority Muslim countries, all unreached people groups, and that's what we were interested in doing. For the next decade, we taught Islamics in a small uh, Bible college in Moldova. We have 750 graduates back in Central Asia as pastors, as church members. 
Uh, and we made a lot of trips to Central Asia during that time. Those are the Stan countries, and that just means country of. So country of the Uzbeks, Uzbekistan, etc. And then for the last seven years, uh, I was overseeing our, our region of South Asia, which is really what you'd think of as Southeast Asia. We've got United Emirates, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei, 700 million Muslims in those six countries, a third of the world's Muslims. And for the last six months now, we've stepped down from that position. We've been visiting churches like this one. And this has been a faithful church. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for praying for Jan. Thank you for praying for our girls. You know, in, in West Africa, they didn't have like a school, a church, nothing. And we wondered what was going to happen to them. And uh, they've, they've all survived. They all have families. Uh, they're all doing well. They're believers. They're, they're husbands or elders in, in the churches they serve in. And we've got 19 grandchildren. Yeah, the oldest is 12. We had six in 14 months. Yeah, our house is chaos at Christmas time. Well, last fall, I made two visits to Asia. Two visits in three and a half weeks. Two visits, not one. Okay? Ten to twelve time zones. Three and a half weeks. For about six weeks, I didn't know where I was. Do I need to do something uh, special? Am I... We're good? Okay. I'll just keep going. So, one of those visits was to a third world country. That third world country is crowded and hot. That's the best way to think of it. Now, Jan and I are used to hot. It was 100 degrees most days, 115 some days. It was 100 degrees in our house. We didn't have electricity. Used to hot, okay? And that country where we have that work has a hospital, a big compound, 45 acres. It's two-thirds of a mile from the back to the front. I had a meeting at the front of the compound. I was walking at three in the afternoon, in the sun, in the heat. I had a headache. I was grumpy. I was really grumpy. And I was thinking, what is going on here? And so I pulled out my phone because we have uh, internet on that compound. We have the, I, I took up the weather app and I looked. I just want to see how hot it was. I just thought, this has got to be like at least over 100, if not more. It's a little bit humid too. Looked and it's 91 degrees. I was like, 91? Why do you feel so grumpy? And then I read the small print. Feels like 108. And I went, yes, okay. Okay, that's good. That's good. Well, that country is home to the world's largest unreached people group, 135 million. And when we think of unreached people groups, Marvin Newell wrote a book called A Third of Us. Marvin Newell gives us some words for this, okay? The three no's are what really characterize an unreached people group. No Bibles, no churches, no Christians. Now, real quick, do you own a Bible? If you don't, the Pew Bible is your gift, okay? Most of you own a Bible. Do you own two Bibles? Five Bibles? Ten Bibles? Twenty Bibles? I still hear some yeses here, okay? Yes, 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 yes. Unreached people groups don't have the Bible. 
They don't have that word of God to go to. No churches. How many churches did you pass to get to this one? As we drove this morning, Jan said, it was before here, wow, this is like church row. You know, it was like ting, 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 ting. There's no visible church in those places for the most part. And no Christians. Now, there are always Christians scattered around, but it was not unusual when we lived in Jordan for someone to come to me and say, are you an American? Yeah. Are you a Christian? Yeah. You know what? I've never met a Christian. Can I ask you some questions? Serious. So three no's. No Bibles, no churches, no Christians. World's largest people group. There's 178 million people in that country the size of the state of Iowa. Okay? It's crowded. The capital city has 23 million people. That's over four times the population of Maryland. Okay? In 180 square miles, the population density is 93,000 people per square mile. Now, I did the math. The Washington metro area, 6.5 million people. Population density, 1,000 per square mile. So I went a little bit further. Washington, D.C., 675,000 people. The population density of Washington, D.C. is 11,500. We're talking nine times that. All these people, all these people. I walked around that place going, how do you even get your head around this? All these people, God loves them, God made them, and God wants them as his own. How does that happen? What we're going to look at is from the book of Acts. Don't turn there because I'm going to go somewhere first. We're going to end there, okay? But I want to go to a parable. And that parable is in Luke 10, 25 through 37. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you know this parable. And Jesus is doing some teaching here about neighbors. Think of all those people. And he ends with a command. Now, when he starts... He starts being questioned by a lawyer. So this is Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start from verse 25. I'm going to read four verses with you, and then we'll talk a little bit. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, so Jesus says to the lawyer, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the lawyer, you nailed it. Now he said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He did nail it. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, strength, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commands of the law. The lawyer should have stopped there. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? He wants some clarification on this. So Jesus says this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest. Now the priest is a religious guy. You have to realize this is a road like this center aisle here. There's not car traffic on this road. There is foot traffic, there's some carts, there's donkeys, there's horses, and this guy is lying right here, and the priest is here. And he walks past him, a religious leader. So likewise, a Levite, another religious leader, passed him on the other side. But a Samaritan, now the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews, okay? Now, I don't know if you're a big football fan, but every team has rivalries, okay? Happened to be for the Ohio State University, but I'm sorry, yeah, a mouth just went open here, okay? So, you know, there's some rivalry here, maybe some animosity, but nothing like this. This was enemies, okay, with a Samaritan. And the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where that man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. And so what does he do? He, he puts medicine on his wounds, and then he transports him to a safe place, and then he deposits money with the innkeeper, okay? The wolf would say, you made yourself tired for me when we did something for them or they did something for each other. This man made himself tired for an enemy. Deposited the money and then he said, when I come back, I'll pay, I'll pay more if you need it. Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Who's my neighbor? There's a little old lady that lived nearby me, Miss Stinson. She was old. She's probably younger than me right now. But I was a kid, four or five kids in my neighborhood. We'd go visit her four or five days a week because she had a nice, cool living room and candy, okay? And she talked to us. She was my neighbor. I knew the people on the street that I lived on. I knew the people, streets neighboring that. But Jesus has just given us a different definition of neighbor, the one who showed mercy. That's harder than my definition. It's more involved, it's more extensive than mine. It's not just a person who lives near me. It's a person, any one of my fellow human beings in the world, that I show mercy to. Mercy to strangers and they may become our neighbors. Now this is where we're going to end up, Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jerusalem, the guy was from Jerusalem going down to Jericho, which is in Judea, and he meets a Samaritan. Three of those places are right here. 
The question the parable raises is, are these people my neighbors? Are these people my neighbors? This was the last thing that Jesus said before he departed to go to heaven. The world is spoken of in Acts 1.8, not just the places, but the people of the world. So who are they? A New, De- New Testament definition, panta to ethne. Okay, that's in the Greek. It just means all the nations. Matthew 28, Revelation 15, that phrase is used, all the nations. If we think of all the nations right now, I did a count, I'm not sure if it's true to the second, 195 different nations in the world. But I think this is more than just geopolitical. Because we go back to the promises of the Bible. And in Genesis 12, verse 3, God says that every family of earth, every clan, tribe will be blessed through Abraham. Clans and families and tribes. And the thought here is ethno-linguistic, okay? Missions term, but you know what it means. Ethnic linguistic, okay? It's marked by the boundaries of ethnicity. Are you Italian? Are you Greek? Are you American like me and don't know? Okay? And geography and language. There are 17,468 distinct ethno-linguistic people groups in the world. And about 4,000 of them are unreached. No Bible, no Christians, no churches. They're included in the the scope of Acts 1-8, but they're also included in the language of heaven. This is from Revelation 7-9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. These are the inhabitants of heaven, and they are from every nation. They're from every tribe and people and language. But then I got a problem. Romans 10, 14 helps to answer my problem. Romans 10, 14, I'll just quote it to you. Romans 10, 14. Says basically, how will they call on him who they have not believed in? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? The answer to those three questions is really simple. Someone must go. That's the answer to those questions. We're to have concern for people spiritually and physically. And so if all these people are going to be in heaven, God must expect that we will treat them as neighbors right here. That we will have compassion on them and that we will care not just for their physical needs, but also for their spiritual needs. They need to be our neighbors here 
if they're ever going to be our neighbors there. This is heaven. There's no way they get there without that. Acts 1.8 is not a standalone instruction. There are really five great commission passages in the Bible. The first one is John 20, 21. This is the first post-resurrection visit. Jesus surprises the disciples there in hiding, and he appears, and he said to them, peace be with you. Like, calm down, guys. Here I am. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Marvin Newell, a third of us, I mentioned him earlier, would call this the model. Okay, Jesus is our model. Mark 16, 15 is the second great commission passages. This is the second post-resurrection visit. They're in hiding again. This is where he actually says to Thomas, put your hand in my side, put your fingers in my hands. And then he says this, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's the second great commission passages. Now from the model, I'm sending you, he says, this is where you're supposed to go, all the world. The third great commission passage is the one you're really familiar with. The disciples are in Galilee, they're alone, Jesus is teaching them in another post-resurrection visit, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority means all authority to command and the power to do it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, amen to that, to the end of the age. This is the method. We're supposed to make disciples. That's the real main verb of this passage, make disciples. I'm sending you to all the world to make disciples. Fourth great commission passage, fourth post-resurrection visit. This is from Luke 24, 46 through 48. And here we get the message that we're supposed to proclaim. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Just like Pastor Mark did this morning. Beginning from Jerusalem, you're witnesses of these things. And so Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is built on these four. Go like I'm, I'm, I'm going to send you like me. You're going to all the world, you're to make disciples, your message is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And then he says this in Acts 1.8. Whoop. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus, who is with us always, will give us three things, three promises here, okay? He gives us power from the Holy Spirit. He says, 
you will be my witnesses. We're gonna be his witnesses, another promise. And then he has a plan for those two promises. It's a strategic plan that involves the world. So I wanna look carefully at those three promises. First, our power is from the Holy Spirit. Robert Glover said this, Christian missions are no human undertaking, but are a spiritual and divine enterprise for which God has provided supernatural power and leadership, a spiritual and divine enterprise. Now I wanna tell you, we're misled. You're misled. If you think Jan and I can do this, or your missionaries can do this, like, you're sadly mistaken, <laughs> okay? <laughs> We've been at it a lot of years. But there's two problems here, okay? The one problem is the task is too big. It is too big. The world is getting bigger, and we're not gaining on it, folks. When Jesus was born, there were 300 million people on the earth. In 1800, the world hit 1 billion. In 1960, it hit 3 billion. And last year, it hit 8 billion. 900 million of those are believers, leaving over 7 billion people who don't know Christ. And over 3 billion of those are unreached. No Bibles, no Christians, no churches. We're not gaining on this, we are losing ground even as we speak. The task is too big for us. We need power from the Holy Spirit. The enemy is way too strong. We were talking a little bit about the enemy today. The enemy is way too strong. This is a spiritual battle, especially in those places of unreached people groups. Why are unreached people groups still unreached? Because they're really hard to reach. That, that's it. That's the whole answer. They're just really hard to reach with governments who are against you and people who are passionately involved in their religions, etc. It's hard to do. And there's spiritual opposition rampant for every missionary, for every pastor, for you sitting in the pew but it's especially dark and heavy in those places. And we could feel that spiritual oppression sometimes just when we landed in a country. I'm thinking of one of the missionaries that I oversaw, a bright young couple. They landed in one of the South Asian countries, and I don't name these because we're streaming and doing stuff like that. And they were there with night terrors, with their kids, with depression, with all sorts of stuff coming at them, and we brought them back within 10 months. And then they knew what they were up against. And they're there now, and they're doing a great job. But they were not ready for what was there. One month in the Middle East, there are 300 missionaries in Amman, Jordan. Okay, there were at the time when we were there. They're learning language and doing different things like that from different agencies, and it was a month of spiritual oppression, okay? And the team leader, we, I had a team leader under me. His wife found him at two in the morning, every light in the house on, whimpering in a fetal position in the corner. In the Gambia, we had three fires. 
three major illnesses with our missionaries until we said, this is spiritual oppression. This is spiritual warfare. And we learned how to do battle against it. No one is equal to this task. It's too big and the enemy is too strong. We have to have a humble reliance on the Holy Spirit. And remember, Jesus said all authority to command and to do. The power is there to do it. All authority is given to him. He's issued this command. So first of all, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, and this is just such a, this is a neat thing. We get to be involved. Now, do you get this? This is, some of you have newborns, okay? You know, it dawned on me when I watched all of our grandchildren, you know, coming, that those kids would die if they didn't have a parent. Do you get that? They can't take care of themselves. They can't eat. They can't. This is what it's like between God and us, except far greater than that. We are nothings in this whole thing. And yet he said, I want you. I want you. One of the first American missionaries was Adoniram Judson. He lost three kids out of eight on the field. He lost two wives out of three on the field. He, sequentially, okay? Okay? And this is what he said when he reflected on humility in ministry. Oh, when will Christians learn that their puny, polluted offerings of works are not necessary to God. He permits them to work. He permits Christians to work as a favor in order to do them good personally because he loves them and desires to honor them, not because he needs them. That's true. If we're his witnesses, then we have to remember it's his message that we're proclaiming. God commissions us. He ordained the message. He's jealous of that message. He's possessive of that message. He sent his son to be here as a substitutionary sacrifice in our behalf for that message. That is the message. And we're to communicate that simple message. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Jesus rose again, and we have freedom as we believe in his name. Now, we see examples of that with those who walked with Jesus. Think of guys like John and Peter and Paul who later met Jesus. They were his witnesses. Thousands were saved. Churches were planted. But let's take it a little bit closer to us and think of men that you might know like Martin Luther or William Tyndale, or William Carey, another missionary, or D.L. Moody, or Jim Elliott, martyred in Ecuador. How did they do those things? Power of the Holy Spirit. And they said, yeah, I'll be a witness. And those alive today, some of my heroes live in Central Asia. I'm not gonna name the country. Central Asia, when the Soviet Union broke apart, the six countries of Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajik, you know, all those stands, there were 500 believers 
Within 10 years, there were 30,000. And we started to work there about five years after that. There was a house church association. We weren't the only ones working with them. At the time we started with it, it was 30 house churches and 500 believers. Five years later, it was 80 house churches and 1,500 believers. They were passionate about the gospel. There's an underground Bible college, and this is one of the most oppressed nations in the world by their government. We were in the capital one day. We were at an Islamic center where they have a Quran that's like 1,200 years old. There's a university there. And we were there just at a gift shop in the university. And one of the professors was there. And the guy who brought us there was one of the leaders of this house church movement, five leaders. And Jan heard him, overheard him talking to the professor. And the rhythm was like, ta-dum, ta-dum, ta-dum. And Jan looked at his wife and said, did he just say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And she said, yeah, yeah. He was arrested about three weeks later. Computers confiscated, Bibles confiscated, heavy fine imposed, and that's the way they were doing those things at that time. These guys are witnesses in the midst of oppression. They are my heroes. And we're to join those type of people. The third promise, it's a strategic plan that involves the world and to me, it involves abundance, okay? I'm just gonna tell you a little story about abundance, okay? I was a camp counselor in my younger days. Beautiful camp, square mile, out in the woods, and we're walking to breakfast, okay? Birds are singing in the trees, cool breeze blowing in the summertime, sun's out, 10 campers behind me, and it was it was the week of special needs. And so these were the intellectually disabled that were with me. So we're walking along and I hear, when's breakfast? And it was Andrew. And Andrew had questions. When's breakfast? Andrew, it's right now, we're on our way. Good. 10 seconds later, when's lunch? <laughs> Noon. When's dinner? five o'clock, and then he said it every time, and snacks as well. And he would ask me that 10, 15 times a day. Andrew lived in that world of abundance, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, all the time. He would have liked to have had those things. That's what this is like. It's Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even the remotest part of the world. Three geographic places, three immense cultural distinctions, three language contexts. This is really the table of contents for the book of Acts. Acts 1 through 8, Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 12, Judea and Samaria. Acts 13 through 28, the rest of the world, okay? But this is a new promise from Jesus and it supersedes the Old Testament commands. What were the Old Testament commands? You come to Jerusalem. You worship in this language 
Because this is the place where sin can be atoned for and you can find relationship with God. The temple. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh. This is not going to be monocultural anymore. Monolinguistic. This is now to be polycentric, polylinguistic. Jesus' death has paid the penalty for our sins. We don't have to go and sacrifice in Jerusalem. They're paid once and for all. You can come to Christ, you can talk to Jesus anywhere in the world, in any language of the world, and the gospel penetrates and flourishes in all those languages and cultures and people. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, just so you understand this, this is not three consecutive places. Did you hear how I read it? Just about every time. There's no then. There's no next. It's Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world, the uttermost parts of the world. Right here, nearby, far away, all at the same time. This deserves some special preparation, doesn't it? Now, a little missiology lesson, okay? It'll take 30 seconds, all right? Have you heard E1 before? E1 evangelism is what we do right with people who are like us. They have the same language, they have the same culture usually, they can understand us, there's hardly any barriers at all. This is Bowie, Maryland for us, okay? E2, is a place like Canada or South Africa or England. We share language, sort of, because if I'm gonna find out your schedule, I need to look at your diary, your schedule and your calendar, okay? Or in the boot of your car, okay? Which I forget which one that is. You know, it's front or back, but I'm not sure which, okay? It's not quite as simple. There's some linguistic differences, there's historical and cultural differences, but there's not too many barriers there, okay? E3 is completely different. Completely different area, completely different language, completely different culture, it's more complicated, there's higher barriers, you have to learn a language. Most of the time you move a pretty long ways away and you live in and learn that new culture. And you're usually not going home for a lot of years, okay? So, three different places, three diverse peoples, three diverse cultures to reach at the same time. They're different from each other, different complexity, but please hear this. They are of equal value. Do you get that? They're of equal value. One is not to be valued more than another. We're not to stress one more than another. We're not to value it more than another but they're all to be happening at the same time. And that means it takes us individually and as a church. The task is too big. We need the church. It takes both the church and our individual involvement. So let's take a breath here. If there's three things I'd like you to remember, it's this, okay? So let's wrap our heads around this. My neighbor is the nations. Panta to ethne. Every tribe, every language, every people and tongue. 
That's my neighbor. Number two, God has a plan. He has the authority to command it. He's empowered us by the Holy Spirit with a message. He's taking care of all the incidentals. It's like going to travel and someone carries your passport for you and gets you through customs and gets your bags for you. It's there. He's got the plan and the promises. And third, he can accomplish this. It's way too big for us. He can accomplish this. So what's that mean to me? Me specifically, those five Great Commission passages, every obligation as from, for a disciple of Christ to follow those things, what's that mean? It means that. Where's your spot? Where is my spot? Well, Jan and I know our spot, okay? We're turning 69. We're going to live in Lancaster near three daughters and 11 grandchildren in a new community with a lot of people who don't know Christ. There's going to be a spot there. Where's your spot? Is it here? Is it nearby? Is it far away? God has chosen and ordained a spot for you and for me. How can I support others as they do their spot? That's really the theme of what you're doing in your missions conference. How can I give, possibly go? What do I need to do to be ready to serve in my spot? If it's here, if it's nearby, if it's far away. And when do I start? Some of you have started already. You've been doing it for years, right here. Amen. This is where you're supposed to be. Can you do it with gusto? Can you do it empowered by the Holy Spirit? Some of you need to go someplace else to do that. Amen. Amen. It's an adventure and it's exciting. Human instruments in God's hands, empowered by the Holy Spirit, laboring in three paces simultaneously will change the world. God has said it. Jan and I will take our spots. Where is your spot? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are good, that you are kind, that you are benevolent, that you are gracious and compassionate and merciful. We're so blessed that you sent Jesus to die in our place, that through his death and burial, resurrection, you give us faith to believe that he is God And you give us eternal life. Thank you for opportunities in this church to serve. Thank you for empowering us to do it. Thank you for your goodness again. In Jesus' name, amen.